Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Coming up. Did somebody know more that they were saying? Was there more to this guy? Did somebody know his name? Did somebody know something about him that they never came forward and told police? For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. Here I was, 25 years old, two boys. What am I going to do? Set us down and told us that daddy went to be with Jesus. It's been nearly 40 years since the wife and son of 28-year-old Danny Stowe got the news that he'd been shot to death while working the door at a club in Atlanta. But as the decades have gone by, they haven't let up on trying to figure out who pulled the trigger. It was years down the road, I remember asking mom, did they ever catch the guy? Yesterday's murder. Those murders are important. But so are the murders from 40 years ago. Joining us is Kristen Crowley, an investigative reporter for 11 Alive WXIA in Atlanta. Kristen, before we walk through the details, this is a case from all the way back in 1982. How did it end up on your radar as a reporter now, almost 40 years later? And actually, the family reached out to me over Facebook. I put a post up on social media talking about the fact that I like to do stories that give people a voice. And if anybody had an issue they wanted me to look into, that they should write me. And so um, his widow, Luann Carmichael, wrote me and she said, you know, we've been fighting for a voice for decades and we still don't have one. I want to know who murdered my late husband. And that's how I started looking into this case. Tell me a little bit about Danny Stowe. What have you learned about him while looking into this case? So he was, you know, he was a young guy. He had two kids, uh, hadn't really been married that long. And um, he just kind of seemed like, it's so cliche to say, but just your typical dad and husband. They had a pretty modest life that they lived, but they were a close family. He was very close with his boys. His his son, Tommy, looked up to him substantially, and he was just the center of the universe of that family. And it was just so unfortunate with the timing of it because he he would, it seemed like he would work over at the Purple Onion to just kind of make some money for the family. Again, it was a modest, a family of modest means. And so he would kind of pick up shifts and it was, you know, it wasn't the greatest place. It was, it was a girl's bar and he, his wife didn't want him to go that night. She, she didn't like that place. She didn't want him to go, but I think that he wanted to make some extra money for his family. And so he went that night to work the door because the doorman called in sick. And so that that night, it's the night of February 26, 1982, Danny shows up for work at this nightclub, the Purple Onion. What happens from there? So as the police reports indicate and as his son indicates, essentially there was a customer who came in kind of flamboyantly dressed and he was being kind of belligerent and he started making fun of the bartender and he was calling him fat and throwing slurs at him. And so the bartender had enough. He's like, you're out of here, get out of here. And he called over to Danny saying, Danny, get this guy out of here. And so 
at some point, this is what becomes a little foggy in the police reports and from witness accounts, is that the the man, the suspect, and Danny are in the hallway near the door, and he makes some kind of comment to Danny. And Danny either said, like, try your best or come at me, something along those lines. And the suspect pulled out a gun and shot him and then ran off and it happened so fast as most crimes like these do that a lot of people in the club at the time didn't even know what was going on. Yeah. You mentioned that some of the details here are foggy looking at some of the original police records, which are actually attached to your web story on this case for any of our listeners who are interested in checking that out. It looks like there was initially some confusion that at least one detective was told there were multiple victims, but when they showed up at the scene, that didn't turn out to be the case, that that only Danny was shot, right? Yeah, correct. And I think that probably, I even hear things like that happen now. You'll, you'll hear a call of the scanner and they'll say multiple victims and there's no victims at all. I think things get misconstrued a lot of times or lost in conversation. Somebody calls 911 and they don't know what's going on. They're relaying everything to emergency responders, what they think is happening. And there was, there was so much confusion going on at the time of his shooting. Uh, his brother was actually there and he was the one who called Danny's widow to, to let her know that Danny didn't make it. And even he wasn't really clear on all the details at the time and was trying to figure things out and piece things together. And it took a few witnesses giving their little snippets of information to really kind of put together what unfolded that night. As you've laid out, there were several witnesses in the club that night that saw bits and pieces of what happened that that saw the suspect. Did anyone recognize that person or, or know him as somebody who frequented that bar? No, and that was the sad thing about this. And the, and the really unfortunate thing about this is because the Purple Onion seemed to be a club where people who went there were regulars. There were a lot of people who knew a lot of people there. Danny knew a lot of people there. His brother knew a lot of people there. The bartender knew a lot of people there. This man, from all witness accounts, was, it was the first time he was in there. It was a stranger. It was somebody nobody knew. Now, the family has some beliefs that maybe this guy was being protected, that maybe somebody did know him and just didn't say it. And again, you know, this is one thing that the private investigator brought up as well. You have a club that, you know, it's it's not the most upstanding place. And so there are people there who were also potentially doing illegal things and things that were not above bar. And so they may not have wanted to get in trouble with police or get involved with police and may not have said anything. And that was always a concern in this investigation was, did somebody know more that they were saying? Was there more to this guy? Did somebody know his name? Did somebody know something about him that they never came forward and told police? Did you know that parents rank financial literacy as the number one most difficult life skill to teach? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app for families. With Greenlight, you send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and keep an eye on your kids' spending with real-time notifications. Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. And parents can rest easy knowing their kids are learning about money with guardrails in place. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. One of the bar employees was able to point detectives to the glass that the suspect was drinking out of at the bar. And at the time in 1982, I imagine they're not thinking in terms of DNA, but but probably in terms of fingerprint evidence. 
Yeah, and they lifted fingerprints from that glass. So they took the glass into evidence. They took the fingerprints into evidence, and then they took the bullet. They did not have the gun, but they did have the bullet. And this is probably the most unfortunate part about this case and the most frustrating part to the Stowe family is that all that evidence is gone. It was lost. And we don't know when it was lost. It could have been a month after the investigation. It could have been 10 years. And all we know is that at one point, the Atlanta PD was going to send those prints off to the GBI and and uh, have them put into a system so they could try and track down this person. And the GBI never got those prints. I don't know how you lose a fingerprint, but it's done. It's probably done a lot. Do you think if you had those fingerprints today, this case would be solved? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> As you mentioned, Danny Stowe was married. He had two young children. You spoke to his wife and one of his sons. What did they share with you about losing their husband and father and then going without answers as this case went unsolved for years and now decades? You know, it's it's one of the first things that I asked the family was about that. And I said, what do you remember from that day? And Tommy was just a young boy, only six years old. And he vividly remembers his mother coming into his room and telling him that daddy went to be with Jesus and he said it was hard for him to comprehend, but he knew. He knew that his dad wasn't coming home, and he was heartbroken. And he said at the end of our piece, it still brings him to his knees, and it's something that's brought him to his knees for his entire life. And he has dedicated his entire adult life into finding out who did this to his father. I was just starting college, and I remember telling her, I said, let's work on this ourselves. And meanwhile, his mother, Luann Carmichael, so she remarried, but this is weighed heavy on her for these last four decades as well. And she was such a young woman. And she said to me, she thought, how am I going to raise these two boys all by myself? And and again, they, they were a modest family. And so it wasn't like she had all these means to support them. She had to really come up with ideas of, of how she was going to support this family of three without their breadwinner and without their patriarch. So it was, it was a huge hit for the family, and it's never gotten any easier for them as the years have gone on. In fact, it's almost gotten harder because they just can't understand how someone can get away with this. So at the beginning, in 1982, mm -hmm. how involved were police with you? None at all. How involved were they, do you think, with this case? Not at all. If they would care like we care, we can get this case solved. So help us. That's your job. At some point, the family decides, hey, let's, let's try to investigate the case ourselves. Tell me about their efforts. Man, uh, their efforts that they have put in are remarkable. They have done such incredible work. So how it started was Luann started asking for records. And at first she was met, met with a lot of pushback from police and they kept saying, well, the case is still open. But at this point, Tommy was in college. I mean, it had been 15 years and no arrest had been made. And she was getting frustrated. Like, listen, you guys haven't done anything in 15 years. Maybe I can at least try to do something. So she fought and fought for the records. And they finally said, all right, here you go. Here are the records. And those records were really helpful. And first of all, that's when she found out there was missing evidence because when she got the records back, she had an email correspondence with the detective. And she's saying, I can't find... Um, I can't find the evidence records here. And that's when he told her over email, yeah, they were lost. They got things like suspects' names. They were tracking down the fact that some witnesses saw a Chevy Nova that they thought the suspect ran to. 
an orange Chevy Nova, so a pretty unique looking car. So there were a lot of things that they found out on their own that they had no idea about prior to them getting involved in the case. And that was what, when they hired or enlisted the help of Detective Lauren Crabtree, really started helping him in this case because, like he said in the piece, like there are leads here. There are leads that have not been followed up on that are viable to solving this case. When Tommy first came to me about the case, first thing that popped out to me was, you know, I'm keeping a list. I'm like, you know, there's still leads here. Tell me a little bit more about Detective Lauren Crabtree and his involvement with this case. I I don't think there are many people out there like Detective Crabtree. I've I've not met met many in my career or in my life. He just happened to be, he's a detective. Uh, He was working for a police agency at the time of our story, but he has actually just um, gotten a new job. He works for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office now. And, but at the time he was on, on social media and, and I believe it was Tommy who reached out to him and was telling him about the case. And Detective Crabtree said he just has a passion for cold cases. He finds them really interesting, and he thinks it's really sad that they can't be solved because he thinks they can be. It's just a matter of someone didn't ask the right questions or someone didn't go down the right path. And so he likes to do that. So he was telling me there were a few cold cases he had been looking into to try and see if he could solve. And when Tommy reached out to him, it was kind of a no-brainer for him. He just thought, you know what? This, at the very least, will do a lot of good for this family to know there is somebody who cares about this case and wants to help them get it solved. So that's the reason he took it on. He's not getting paid for it. He is not. It it was uh, something he was doing in his free time. So that really shows you the kind of person he is because there was a definite passion for this and a care for this family. And so where does his investigation stand at this point? Has he been able to identify any new suspects? Well, we have some... Good news in in this end. He had identified some suspects that he thought should be questioned. He was not able to question them because the case was not in his jurisdiction at the time. He would have needed somebody from Atlanta PD to go and question the suspects. In the last couple months, we have we have a new a new suspect that was not a suspect prior to that. If this was my case on on my desk at work, that individual would be in an interview room, you know, quick. However. Now that Detective Crabtree is working for the Fulton County District Attorney's Office, that case has since been reopened. So Danny Stowe's cold case is back open, and Detective Crabtree is the detective working on the case for it now for the DA's office, which is wonderful news. So now he should be able to have that latitude that he didn't have before, and he should be able to start looking into people and potentially questioning people that have not been questioned up until this point, that haven't been talked to in the last 40 years. And we should also preface this, that it is very possible the person who is involved in this murder has died. It's been a long time. Um, The suspect was anywhere in mid-20s to early 40s, there there were a lot of conflicting things about the age. So it's possible this person is not alive today. But even with that being the case, Detective Crabtree has said he still believes this case can be solved, that they could find out with enough evidence who was behind that shooting. And it just makes me think, you know, if there are new potential suspects, there are new leads, the missing evidence becomes potentially even more significant because... We don't have those fingerprints anymore to run against any new suspects. Right. And that's why it's the most frustrating thing for the family is because this case probably would have been solved by now if they had just had those fingerprints. And 
it's it's frustrating, but at the same time, Detective Crabtree said, we got to let it go because maybe the fingerprints are out there somewhere. Maybe they've been destroyed. Maybe they're lost forever, but we can't hang on to that. We have to look at other options in solving this case because if you just sit back and think, man, that is so unfortunate, it's never going to do anything for you. It, it is unfortunate and it never should have happened, but it did. And so now the question is, how do we solve the case without that evidence? And he believes that there are avenues and there is information out there that can point to the killer. What does the family make of that optimism? Are they hopeful as well that that this case could be on the verge of getting solved? Oh, absolutely. They have so much faith in Detective Crabtree. And again, it's it's not even so much that somebody is investigating the case. It's that somebody cares about this family and cares about this case. And that is a bulk of what the family has wanted. I think the family kind of came to terms that, you know what, they may never know who did this. They really want to know who, but they may never have that answer. What they can't come to terms with is people giving up and investigators saying it's just never going to be solved. That's not okay in their book. And what Detective Crabtree gave them was that belief that they really needed to feel that somebody cares about this and somebody is going to see this through. And he doesn't have in his head that, eh, maybe we won't find anybody, but, you know, that is a reality. I, I mean, it's he, solving a crime after this long with no physical evidence, that's really, really tough. But he believes that this case can be solved, and I believed him when he said it. I, You know, I don't think he was, you know, blowing steam or anything. I think that he truly believes there can be a resolution to this case, and I think that's what keeps his family going. Kristen Crowley with 11 Alive in Atlanta. I hope we'll have more news on this case from you soon. Thanks for sharing the story. I do too, Reed. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. As a reminder, we're here five days a week, Monday through Friday. So if you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this right now. And if you're looking for more podcasts, you can head over to vaultstudios.com for a full list of our shows that includes our weekly podcast, True Crime Chronicles. That'll do it for this one. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond.